When we were transitional deacons at Notre Dame Seminary, we did our final retreat at the conclusion of our final semester, and Archbishop Hughes led it. In his opening conference, he said something very simple. We can either be a friend of God, or we can seem to be a friend of God. Those are the only two options. We can be a friend of God, or we can seem to be a friend of God. And so Christ, in today's gospel, speaks very harsh words. If you do not do these things, you are not worthy of me. And it's not because Christ has some kind of schizophrenic or bipolar disorder where it seems like he's really nice sometimes and really mean sometimes. It's just because he acknowledges deeply who he is, that he is God, and that if he is God, then everything belongs to him, and our whole lives do as well. And so I don't have any organized or systematic comprehensive thoughts on these three things that Jesus says. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross is not worthy of me. And whoever uh, finds his life will lose it. I don't have any comprehensive thoughts on linking all three of them together, but I just want to share with you, I think, some thoughts to help interpret this and that I think are just important for family life and how uh, to live holiness within the family. The first line that Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We all know that within the family, there are some who take their faith more seriously than others. And right before this is when Jesus is saying that a sword, I've come not to bring peace, but the sword within the family. And often in the New Testament, the sword is symbolized as the word of God. But while there is tension that happens within the family over faith, and rightly so, because someone has to step up and say, the family is a family of sinners, and I, now that I have my driver's license, I'm going to go to the chapel, even though it pricks my parents', my parents' consciences. Or that we are not generous enough with our finances, is time for me to give and then ask for forgiveness later. Or whether it's, I'm starting to go to daily mass, and it's been an inconvenience to my family, not because of fulfilling our family duties, but because it goes against our comfortable lifestyle. There's always going to be that. But there's another attitude that can infiltrate the family, which is a deep skepticism about one another. That is to say, they're not even trying to be holy, nor can they ever be holy. And so family members can always up the ante with one another to say, I'm going to go do the most radical thing and make the family a very suspicious place. And we can idolize these certain things, whether it's like the far mission work or the extra holy hour or the extra Bible study, the extra church thing. We can easily idolize that. And so I want to read a reflection on someone who lived the perfect family life. And that is Mary, the mother of God. The author writes... There is nothing extraordinary required of us in external works, 
There's nothing special that we need to do in order to be pleasing to God. Our Lady is the perfect model of the Christian. But what a rebuke to our notions and to our standards. She had the best equipped mind that ever lived in Christendom. She was enlightened as no prophet had ever been enlightened. She had a power of intercession of which no one can determine the limit. She had a zeal for her son's glory and for her son's work that burned more fiercely fiercely than the zeal of all the great souls of the church. Yet, what was her life? Ordinary, obscure, and laborious. The wife of a village carpenter, she takes care to lose herself in the crowd. The mother of the far-famed Messiah, she appears but once in his public life between Cana and the Passion. The most enlightened and zealous member of his church, she is invisible to our eyes from the day of Pentecost. She gives but one message to men in words and preaches a lifelong sermon in obscurity and silence. All her desires seem to have centered on her own effacement. Even the active work of preaching Christ and teaching his doctrine, she left to others. Although tradition has it that the disciples found in her a gentle instructress and a calm inspiration for their ministry. There would be much more holiness, as there would also be much more happiness in the world if her Christian sons, and especially her Christian daughters, were to imitate her example. Her external works are known to almost no one because they are ordinary, obscure, and laborious, but it is her internal life that is beautiful and unspeakable. The second point, whoever does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The operative word is whoever does not take up his cross. First, a clarification on crosses. People are not crosses. Can't look at my family and say my mom is my cross or my child is my cross. People are not crosses. Crosses are crosses. People are people. That's, that's just rule of thumb. But secondly, Jesus says, take up his cross. We often don't take up Jesus' cross because we're often not holy enough to take up Jesus' cross. We take up our cross. What is our cross? The cross is probably the thing that we deserve. We've pretty much all earned our crosses. You know, you look at those who are crucified to Jesus right into his lap. Are they on Jesus' cross? Nope. They're on their cross. Why? Because as the good thief says... We deserve our just punishment. Our crosses are the things that we need to take up before to follow Jesus, which means that we have to take up ownership for our sins. We have to take up ownership for our failures. If we want to follow Jesus, it's that simple to some degree. We have to take up our cross and not try to take up Jesus' cross and neglect just our own, uh, our own sins and failings. It's time to take ownership for ourselves. And then thirdly, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We heard in that second reading that 
Christ died a death to sin, and he dies no more. And now we are to die to sin and live for God. I think that's another operative word. And live for God. Very often, if we are like the holy member in the family, or if we go on a powerful retreat, we have a powerful prayer, is that we almost want to go on like a suicide mission for God. Like, I want to die for God. I want to do whatever it takes. You know, I want to make the big yes for God. We heard um, two days ago in the memorial of the Holy Roman Martyrs what real Christian martyrdom actually looks like. It's not often that we're interrogated and then we just have to answer for our belief in God. The reason why the first Holy Roman Martyrs were martyred was because of one man who tried to find his own life and certainly lost it. This was Nero, one of the emperors in the early Roman Empire, who ruled around the 60s AD. Nero had a lot of other sins. For instance, he uh, killed his own mother because uh, he thought that she was power hungry. One of the smaller sins, though, that he had was his sin of vanity, seemingly innocuous. He liked himself. And so what he wanted to do was destroy about or renovate a third of Rome and within it build Neropolis, the city of Nero. The Senate declined. And so incidentally, just happenstance, a fire broke out in Rome. This fire lasted six days and seven nights. It destroyed two-thirds of Rome. And so whenever fingers start getting pointed, who gets caught in the crossfire but this new weird sect called Christianity. And so it's the Christians are the one who are blamed, and it's the Christians are the one who are persecuted. And what did they do? Nothing about their faith in Christ. They were just kind of this weird offshoot group, living their lives innocently, but not being powerful enough to have a voice in Rome. And so that is often what Christian martyrdom looks like. It's not simply dying for God, as if there's this big feat that God's going to put in front of us, and we have to answer to the call. And until then, we are waiting. It is often living patiently with other people's faults, and then getting caught in the crossfire and dealing with other people's sins. And then that is when we bear not only our crosses, but theirs. And so in the end, we live this humble, ordinary, laborious, and obscure life like Mary, because we desire to truly be a friend of God as she was, and not seem to be one.